invite you to turn with me this morning in your Bibles to Luke chapter 13, uh, beginning in verse 10. But before we get into the text, uh, just kind of a bit of an overview. We're, we're talking this morning about a subject, uh, uh, an event in Scripture that actually is kind of multi-layered. Uh, there are several things going on in this uh, event. I don't mean to suggest there's different meanings. Scripture can only have one meaning. Any intelligible conversation can only have one meaning. Uh, but oftentimes it has different applications. And uh, this is the case of this uh, particular event, our narrative in Luke's Gospel uh, this event serves multiple purposes in the um, ministry of Jesus where he is now moving from uh, where he has been toward Jerusalem. Remember, we're on this journey. It takes a while. Uh, he is meandering uh, down toward uh, that time when he will make that triumphant entry that we have just so recently uh, remembered and celebrated one of the layers of the story has to do with Sabbath keeping. I don't know how you grew up, but um, I grew up uh, in, a, in a Baptist home down in uh, Florida in, in the south um, many years ago. <laughs> we'll leave it at that. And uh, in, the, in the process, there were things in our family that we um, practiced concerning the Sabbath. For one thing... Um, it was expected that we would not make any uh, loud ruckus or lots of noise on Sunday. That was our Sabbath, that we wouldn't uh, have boisterous games, go out and play uh, ball and create all kinds of uh, noise. My parents wanted to um, make sure that we honored the Sabbath, or maybe it was honoring their nap, I'm not sure which. But uh, they threatened us with Sabbath breaking, not with nap breaking. So that that served the purpose there. Um, you know, it was a day to uh, break from all the other efforts. We did all the yard work on Saturday. Uh, they worked, uh, my dad worked five days a week. And then Sunday was, you got up, you went to church, you came home, you had Sunday dinner, or you went to spend time with family. And uh, you took the afternoon uh, visiting, chatting, reading the comics or the paper, but you didn't, uh, you didn't do any work. We didn't mow the grass on Sunday. We didn't do any kind of labor. There was no yard work at all, no matter what the situation. Uh, Sunday was kind of reserved that way. And so that was kind of my background with, uh, with Sabbath keeping growing up. And then when we were in college, we were serving in a small Baptist church in North Georgia. And um, it was a little country Baptist church. And, and again, there were some folk there who had some very uh, peculiar notions about the Sabbath. I remember one lady, uh, an incident that occurred. Her name was Emma Julia Kellerman. And uh, Emma Julia won't overhear this and get upset with me because uh, she's been with Jesus for some time, I'm sure. But uh, Emma Julia was uh, a seamstress by trade, and uh, that's how she earned her living. She was a single lady, and she was also the um, 
Sunday school superintendent, and uh, I could always count on her being there early, and she was a very faithful person. She always did her assigned duties and tasks on Sunday morning, and this particular Sunday I, I arrived at church, and the button had come off my sport coat as I got out of the car, and so uh, I retrieved the button, and I went into Emma Julia, and I said, um, would you be so kind when you're finished with the records as to uh, put my button back on for me, please? And she looked at me kind of sadly and somberly, and um, I think a little bit embarrassed because uh, she felt bad having to say what she was about to say, but she said, uh, Brother Paul, I don't sew on Sunday, and I'm sorry, but I cannot put your button back on today. Well, fortunately, Emma Julia was a pretty mature Christian, and uh, I knew I wasn't going to shake her faith if I sewed on Sunday. So I asked if I could borrow a needle and thread. Figured I could shank a coat button as well as anyone, and I put my own button back on. (laughs) She wouldn't even thread the needle, though. This was Sunday, and you do not work on Sunday. Well, that's part of the backdrop of of this event as we consider um, the story that Luke presents for us. Jesus has been invited to teach in the synagogue. Now, you remember where we left off last time in verse 9. He was still with the multitudes. He was with the disciples and the crowd of thousands. Obviously, he was gaining popularity. And uh, in that episode, he, he had just told the story of the unproductive fig tree. And we're left with that kind of lingering in our minds. And as Luke pulls the curtain back on this story, we don't know what uh, went on beforehand. We don't exactly know what town this was. But it's uh, apparent that Jesus' popularity as a teacher is growing And it was a reasonable thing, in fact, it was customary in that time to invite traveling teachers and rabbis to speak. And so they're in the synagogue on the Sabbath, and Jesus has been invited by the president or ruler of the synagogue to bring the teaching. Now, you have to kind of get in your mind how the synagogues were in those days, and Uh, and how they uh, kind of separated themselves. As I look out on you this morning, I see uh, men and women scattered all together throughout the room, uh, sitting next to each other. Shame, shame. Uh, Don't you know that that's such a distraction to attentive learning? Uh, The Jews had the men sit forward in the the, uh, synagogue, and the ladies sat in the back. The men could ask questions. The women could not speak. Um, They were supposed to sit in the back, and uh, sometimes even a veil or screen uh, was put up, and uh, they were supposed to just stay quiet in the back rows. And so um, Jesus is sitting down front, as I'm sitting this morning, by the way, because uh, teachers sat to teach in those days. And uh, Jesus is sitting down front, and he's offering the teaching. And the scripture says that he sees a woman who has been bent nearly double, or practically double, for 18 years, uh, bound by a spirit. 
And he invites her to come to him. He says to her, come here. Now, already we're in trouble with tradition and culture. To, to bring this woman out from the back, down in front of all the men, and to bring her into the, the focal point of the, of the Sabbath teaching uh, was already had people uh, on edge. And as she comes down, uh, you can imagine her making her way. Um, bent double meant that her spine was so bent over that she was kind of like this as she walked. And when you're like that, you have to hold your head up or you can't see where you're going. So she made her way down like this. And she had been this way for 18 years. And people that have these spinal conditions live in a great deal of pain, particularly because their spine is bending toward itself like a jackknife, but their head has to be forcibly held backward in hyperextension in order to see. Um, if you can do this without passing out, if there's any risk of passing out, please don't try it. But just lean your head back as far as it will go toward the ceiling and imagine living your life with your head in that position. How many of you tried it? I wasn't looking because I was trying it. Ah, you're just watching me. But she makes her way forward and Jesus says, you are freed. And he places his hands on her. And immediately the scripture says, she stands up straight. She's able to stand straight up and hold her head straight forward. And it happens in the blink of an eye. It's so remarkable. She is ecstatic. She, she's never been like this in, in nearly two decades. She begins to praise God and glorify God. I don't think that was very subdued, by the way. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if she wasn't dancing and shouting and waving her arms and, oh my goodness, in front of all the men, how are we going to deal with this? And the synagogue leader is just overwhelmed with frustration. I kind of think he might have been a little fearful of inviting Jesus to begin with. And now his worst fears have come to pass. Jesus has done this healing right in front of the synagogue on the Sabbath, with a woman nonetheless. And he's created all of this, uh, uh, you know, commotion. And the synagogue leader looks around to the crowds and he says, look, listen up. You can get healed six days during the week. You come during the week if you want to be healed. Don't you come here on the Sabbath to be healed. And he's really trying to get everybody back on track and back in their place. Now, before we carry that any further, I want to go back and look at this woman's situation for just a moment because it's the first layer of our story. Besides all other considerations, <clears throat> here is a woman who has been bent over by a, a sickness. Luke, the physician, is careful to call it a sickness for some 18 years. Uh, people who have tried to figure out what this might be in uh, modern language terms have suggested 
uh, possibly ankylosing spondylitis. Uh, ankylosing spondylitis is a rheumatoid condition of the spinal column. And uh, if you uh, can remember how that may look, it's, it's supposed to be relatively straight. And as you look between the rib cage and the pelvis in that lumbar region, you're supposed to see a, a reasonably straight uh, lumbar area, and you can see the disc spaces between the vertebral bodies, but it's all supposed to be lined up. But with the ankylosing spondylitis, uh, the, the condition causes the large bones of the spine to begin to flare at the edges. So they look like bamboo joints. You know, can you picture that in your mind, these sharp flares between each joint? Well, as that continues to occur over time, it uh, builds up more and more uh, calcification around that, and it begins to force the spine into flexion from which it cannot straighten. And although it's a disease that normally affects uh, young men in their 20s or 30s, it also affects women in a lesser percentage and as time goes along, the person bends further and further and further over with the deterioration of the spine and these bamboo kinds of joints. And eventually, they're bent over and they have to hold their head up to see where they're going. Luke says it's a disease. It's a sickness that she had. But it is attributed to a spirit. And as Jesus later uh, responds to the synagogue leader, he says, This woman, a daughter of Abraham, has been bound by Satan for 18 years. We gain some interesting insight into this lady's problem, and also into her own character. First of all, the term daughter of Abraham is only used here, and this story only occurs in Luke's gospel. Now, what does it mean in this instance to be a daughter of Abraham? Well, Abraham was the one who believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. He is considered the father of the faithful. And so we're saying, in essence, that this woman was a a follower of Abraham in her faith, a follower of God. She was faithful. She was a believer. She had her commitment toward God, like Abraham. <clears throat> and yet, she was troubled by a, a demonic spirit that had caused a sickness. The Apostle Paul was similarly troubled. You've uh, heard me talk about this before. But if you translate in Corinthians his uh, thorn in the flesh, if you translate that literally from the original language, it says, there was given to me an angel of Satan, a messenger from Satan, uh, to trouble me, <clears throat> lest I exalt myself. And whatever uh, Paul's physical affliction was that uh, reduced his own strength, but caused him to rely fully upon the power of God, that uh, sickness or that illness that he experienced was attributed to a demonic spirit from the devil. So, 
one of the things that we need to recognize in this particular story, and it, it really brings it out quite clearly, is that it is possible for believers to have demonic trouble uh, causing bodily sickness. Now, having said that, when we appeal to God in our times of illness, we need to keep an open mind as to what He might say to us. Because there are at least three sources of sickness that I can find in Scripture in our life, at least the causes behind it. One of those is that we're just plain sick. We live in a fallen world, and we get sick. Um, You recall the disciples' pretty ridiculous question, Who sinned, Lord, this man or his parents, that he should be born blind? You know, and I, I don't know if Jesus would have gestured this way, but I can just see him going, How can that pop? Come on. And how do you sin when you're not even born? Get with it. All Jesus says is, whatever he did, <laughs> all he said was, neither this man nor his parents. In other words, sin is not the cause of his blindness. And he doesn't attribute it to a demon either. He just simply restores a man's sight and says, God is going to get glory out of this situation. Some people are sick because of their sin. Remember the man at the pool that had been lame for all those years, unable to walk, and he kept wanting to get in the water when the water was stirred, but no one would put him in. And Jesus comes along and says, do you want to get well? Very perceptive question. And and the man says, he doesn't answer the question. He says, there's no one to put me in the water when it stirs up. And it's like Jesus said, that's not what I asked you. What I said was, do you want to get well? And Jesus heals him and says to him, Go and stop sinning, lest a worse thing happen to you. And clearly that man's situation was a result of his own sinfulness. And now here is a woman who is a faithful believer and follower of God, who has this deformity of her spine and this sickness that is attributed to a demonic spirit. Whenever we come before the Lord in our time of physical need and we say, Lord, uh, I'm looking to you as my ultimate healer. I I need you to touch me. Um, We need to have an open mind to what he will say to us. Uh, We may just be sick. We may be troubled by a spirit. We may have sinned in some way. And that is impacting our life in a a physical realm. And so, this lady had had a demon binding her, tying her up, and bending her over and ruining her life for 18 years. And Jesus, in an instant, delivers her. Now, the synagogue leader is really unhappy. Uh, The text says he got very angry. At least that's the original language. He became very angry or he got indignant. He looks at the crowd and he says to the crowd, "Um, 
You can come during the week and get your healing. You have six days to do work. But the Sabbath day, that's a holy day. And we are not going to be doing healing in this synagogue on the Sabbath. Remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. I can just imagine him expounding that to to the crowds. And when he's done with his spiel, he does. He kind of ignores Jesus. He talks right to the group. Uh, and, and when he's done, Jesus says, You hypocrite. Ouch. You hypocrite. If your donkey or your ox is tied up, you untie him and lead him to water on Sunday. On, on the Sabbath, I'm sorry. That was Saturday for them. You lead him to water. Should it not be reasonable that this woman who has been tied up by Satan be released and set free on the Sabbath? Isn't the Sabbath about restoration? Isn't the Sabbath about communing with God? Isn't it about focusing on God? You hypocrite. You treat your animals better than you treat human beings. And you have completely missed the point. Now, that's what he's getting at, although he didn't say it in those terms. In order for us to understand how Jesus was uh, drawing this uh, analogy, we need to go back and look at the Sabbath for a moment. Remember that the Sabbath, keeping the Sabbath, is actually one of the Ten Commandments. Don't lose sight of that. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. God commanded that to Israel. And it is elaborated upon throughout the Mosaic Law and Covenant, what it means to keep Sabbath. The Sabbath goes back to creation. And in creation, the Scripture says, So God finished all of his work on the sixth day, and on the seventh day he rested. And that is the reason given in the Ten Commandments for Sabbath keeping. For God did all of his work in six days, and on the seventh day he rested. Therefore, the seventh day is a holy day to the Lord. Also, if you reckon the way Jewish people reckon, the way Israel reckoned, that the day begins at sundown and ends at sundown the next day, then you understand that as Adam and Eve were made toward the end of the sixth day, the very first thing they did was go to sleep on the Sabbath day and woke up in the rest of God. And God's intention was that human beings should live within His Sabbath, within His rest. That's why the writer of Hebrews says there is there remains therefore a Sabbath rest for the people of God and those who have ceased from their labor have entered into his rest. Jesus said, abide in me. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Rest in me. Abide in me. And I will produce fruit through you. We were designed to rest in God. Not to wear ourselves silly. And as a consequence of the fall, the labor 
that was toilsome and unproductive and difficult as the ground yielded thorns and thistles was introduced into the human condition. And so God made the regulation ultimately six days you can battle the elements. You can work and do all your work, but on the seventh day you need to come to a stop. You need to focus on me. You need to rekindle your relationship with me. You need to meditate. You need to think. You need to to rest in me and allow your spirit to be rejuvenated as you spend this time with me. This is a day for you to spend with me. And, And you can do all this other stuff in six days. Now, the nation of Israel always had a hard time keeping that straight. And so, after the exile, they learned a lot from the Babylonian captivity. And after the exile, when they came back to Jerusalem and began to rebuild Jerusalem and rebuild the the regions of Palestine, the rabbis, and that's when the whole synagogue thing began to develop, and the rabbis, or the teachers of the law, uh, wanted to make sure, among other things, that the people did not break the Sabbath. They were very keen on idolatry, and they were very keen on keeping the law and on the Sabbath. They did not want to go off to Babylon again. And so the rabbis realized that they needed to make some interpretation of what the Sabbath meant. Now, if you go back and you read Leviticus 23, don't do that right now, but you can do that later. Uh, You read Leviticus 23. If you're reading certain uh, modern translations, you will find that uh, the, the word, you shall do no laborious work on the Sabbath, is used. Laborious work. Because our word for work, or the physics definition of work, is not analogous to what God meant in what he was prohibiting from the Sabbath. Built into that word is the concept of being creative or productive. And what God was actually prohibiting in the Sabbath was creative or productive work. God himself did not rest completely on the seventh day of creation. Do you know how we know that? Because the universe is still here. If he had completely stopped expending energy, he holds all things together by the word of his power. It would have all come apart. God neither sleeps nor slumbers. What he stopped doing was making things, producing things, creating things for that day. And that's Inherent in the, in the meaning of the laborious effort that they are prohibited from exercising on the Sabbath. In other words, don't do things that are productive, that are creative, that are uh, plowing the fields, that are doing things that are going to uh, keep you engaged in your commerce. But you've got to lead your oxen to water can't make them go the whole day without water. 
You have to lead your donkey to water. You have to put some food in the manger. You, you have to take care of your livestock. You have to take care of yourself. And so the rabbis sought to give some ideas on how to avoid breaking the Sabbath with this concept of creativity at its root. And so they created 39 laws or headings of law, uh, each of which had a bunch of rules underneath them. So I've told you before there were over 600 different rules about the Sabbath, but, but they were organized into 39 categories. And those categories broke it down so that the people could understand what was permissible and what was prohibited. Now, let me explain how this works. Let's say you have a bowl that has peanuts and raisins in it. It's a trail mix. You have peanuts and raisins. Now, you happen to like raisins, but you do not like peanuts. And it happens to be the Sabbath. How can you get the raisins without doing work? Well, if you take the peanuts out, you leave a bowl of pure raisins, and you've made something. It started out as a trail mix, and you have now created a pure bowl of raisins. You can't do that. But if you pluck out the raisins and eat them, you have not made anything. It started out as a bowl of trail mix, and you simply ate the raisins out of it. You have not created something. You can do that. I'm not kidding you. This is Jewish law. This is not just an illustration. This is Jewish law. So, if you have your mixed bowl, you cannot separate a mixture so as to make something new but you can separate it if you're merely subtracting from something that exists and you're not making something new. So if you like the raisins, don't pick out the peanuts, pick out the raisins and eat them. You can set the table if you're planning to eat right away. You can sort out the silverware and put it on the table if you're ready to sit down to eat. But if you have the silverware in the drain and you are going to sort it to put it in the drawer, no, 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 you cannot do that because now you are sorting and separating on the Sabbath. It's like separating the heads from the grain and the chaff and all. You cannot do that. But if you're going to take a handful of silverware and place it on the table and put a fork and a knife and a spoon at each place, that is permissible because you're not, you're not sifting and sorting then with the intent of creating a separation. You're merely placing the table utensils out for the meal. Are you with me? This is really important stuff for Sabbath keeping, all right? So the concept is you can't make anything new. Now, Added to that is the question of human life. And there is a rule by the rabbis, in fact, God certainly supports this as well, there is a rule by the rabbis, well, even if your ox falls in the ditch, you can get him out. 
If human life is involved, not only are you permitted to break any Sabbath law in the interest of saving the life, you are commanded to break the Sabbath laws to save the life. Human life is of paramount importance. It is the first order of priority, and it trumps everything. So if your friend or spouse or child falls into the river, you can do whatever you can do whatever is needed to, to, to rescue them. And you are commanded to do it, no matter how many laws you break, and you are completely exonerated. So let's come back to Jesus and the Sabbath and the woman with the problem. She's a human being. She has been tied up by Satan for 18 years. She is not in a whole condition. She is in a broken condition. To cause her to recover is not to create something new. It is to restore something broken. It's like getting the ox out of the ditch. To untie her bondage is like untying the cattle to lead to water. She's being freed of necessity. And because she is a human being, she trumps all the laws because of her great need. And Jesus is trying to confront the people with these realities. Your religion has gotten in the way of who God is. You completely missed it. You don't understand Him. The Sabbath was not uh, man was not made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man. We weren't created just so we could honor God with 640 rules on the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made to restore us, to bring us into relationship with Him, to renew us, to revive us, to give us opportunity to worship. What could be more wonderful and more blessed than this woman who's been tied up by the devil for all these years to be free to worship and to praise God? This is the moment for that. You are hypocrites. You've got it all turned around. You've made a mess of your understanding of the Sabbath. God is a relational God. He's a loving God. He's interested in you. It's not about how, how you can keep all these little rules, whether you're picking peanuts or raisins. It's about whether you are walking with God in the spirit of His heart. And she's been tied up by the devil. What better day to free her than this Sabbath rest? What more marvelous opportunity. And by the way, it was okay for Jesus to be teaching on the Sabbath. Now, I don't know what that did for him, but it it wears me out. I'm going to go home and eat my lunch and take a nap. Teaching twice on the Sabbath takes all my energy. 
For one thing, I get up very early on the Sabbath, on Sunday. It's not really the Sabbath, but it's Sunday. For another thing, um, there's spiritual warfare going on. There's a battle raging in the heavenlies every time the truth is being presented. This is draining. A lot of people don't understand that, but that's a reality. I'm done. When I get home, I'm done. Leave me alone for a few hours. And so, what was Jesus doing teaching? If he couldn't, what did he do to heal the woman? He just said, woman, you're free. He laid his hands on her. Bam! God did the work. He didn't expend any energy to do that hardly. Not close to what the teaching was expending. And so... He just looks this guy in the eye and he says, you hypocrite. You have really missed it. Now, here's the third layer uh, to this whole thing. Recall we ended last week on the story of the fig tree that was unproductive. And Jesus in that message was saying, you know what? You had three years. You haven't produced anything. Just one more season to see if you can be productive. You need to repent. Never mind those 18 people that died when the tower fell or those Galileans that Pilate murdered. The fact is you're still alive and you've got an opportunity to get it right. And I want you to get it right. And your time is running out. Israel at this point had maybe 45 years left before Rome overran them and and just uh, desecrated the temple area and destroyed Jerusalem. And for 1,900 years, the the Jews were not a a people in a land. And their time was short, and Jesus was trying to get them to get it. And... As he moves out of this event, he takes us into parables about the kingdom. And basically what he's saying to the people is, the kingdom of God is much bigger than you can imagine. It's much bigger than you have thought. The kingdom of God is beyond your little rules and your little narrow-minded interpretation of the scripture. The kingdom of God is this huge, glorious thing. That, that the love of God is at the heart of it, and the restoration of broken lives is His, is his purpose. And, and this is the segue between the parable of the fig tree and the need for repentance and the shortness of time and His expansion on the meaning and the, the largeness of the kingdom. And He is, I think in some ways, He is intentionally confronting them. It's like in your face. I'm going to call this woman out in the synagogue, in front of the men, on the Sabbath, and release her. Because this is the law. And I'm going to honor it and keep it. And this is the time, more than any other, to do this. And you need to rethink your understanding. Of who God is. Because this is what he's about. And so 
I encourage you, I've given you some thought questions in the study guide this week that I haven't really even covered in the sermon, but uh, I hope when you go to your small groups, or if you're not in a small group, um, you'll talk this over with a friend or spouse or around the dinner table or in your own study. I want you to think about how you understand God, how, what box you've tried to fit Him into. And, and open your heart and see if God has something bigger to show you. Uh, you know, the truth is, we like rules. They're so easy to follow. You say, oh, they're not easy for me. Well, they are easy in a sense because they tell you exactly what to do. Just tell me what to do and I'll be fine. Just, just give me the rules and I'll be fine. And that's what the rabbis tried to do. And their rules actually obscured God. They made a mess. And so what the kingdom is about is experiencing the largeness of God. Being led by the Spirit. Now, that takes a a deeper sense of commitment to the relationship than keeping the rules. If you break a rule, you know you either kept it or you didn't. But if you run into a situation and you don't have a rule, you have to talk to God. You have to have a conversation with Him. You have to ask for his guidance. You have to seek his direction. And he he has an opportunity to work through you. It's relational. It's not religious. Have you tried to fit God into a box? Or are you accustomed to walking with him in relationship? And that's a part of what the issue is here in this passage. Well, Father, as we consider this, I pray that you would open our hearts and minds to understand it. That you would uh, make us uh, people who are not hypocritical in our application of your word. And I want to thank you, Lord, for loving this woman, for reaching out on this Sabbath day and delivering her from 18 years of painful bondage. I thank you, Lord, for releasing her and freeing her. Let us not miss the human moment and all the other implications of this event. That you loved this woman and you met her need. And that's who you are. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.